Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up, a conversation with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome to Front Row, Governor Christie. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Why don't we begin with your thoughts on Joe Biden's inauguration and his message to America? Well, listen, I think that the president did exactly what he needed to do. Um, I think the best thing about it, about the speech was he didn't try to be anybody he wasn't, Mark. He didn't aspire to Kennedy type of uh, rhetoric or Obama type rhetoric or Reagan type rhetoric. Um, he was plain spoken. He talked about the issues that he talked about during the campaign. And I think he checked all the boxes. The much more difficult part comes now because it's easy to talk about unity. Um, it's much tougher to govern in that way. And uh, I've lived that with a Democratic legislature in my years as governor. Um, and so all these things are very tough, but I think the president got off to a good start. You know, the number one agenda item for him is COVID-19 and, and, and combating the uh, pandemic. How do you think the initial federal response was uh, to the pandemic, and where do we need to go from here? I think it was mixed. I think there were some great successes. I think the production of ventilators, the production of PPE, um, the, uh, and obviously Operation Warp Speed in the uh, development and production of vaccines were all major, major accomplishments for the Trump administration. I think where they fell down was not taking the, the epidemic as seriously as they should have right from the start. Uh, and I think that a lot of what they missed out on was the symbolism that ran from that as well. I think the president's decision not to wear a mask was a mistake. I told him that from the beginning. Um, not because the president himself was so much at risk, Mark, but because it would have meant something to the country and depoliticized that issue, which it should be in my view. So I think it was a mixed response. Um, but on the big things, I think the president did well. Vaccines, PPE, ventilators, hospital capacity. He did those things well and got us through the first part of this crisis. And now it's going to be President Biden's job to get us to the end of the tunnel. How do we get more shots and more arms and more Americans? Let me tell you, we should be using the private sector, Mark, um, to be doing this. The distribution networks, you know, I know we're using FedEx and UPS, but we should be using Amazon. We should be using all of our major um, companies out there who deal in logistics and have them work with the states directly to do it. Um, and I, I hope that what, what President Biden will do is put much more of a focus on this. You know, we had a big run up. This is one of the places where I think the Trump administration fell short. We had a big run up to this. We knew the vaccines were coming. We had some optimism out there that they'd be ready by the end of the year. We should have had a much more robust plan and there should have been greater federal involvement. You know, in the end, the states are beaten down right now, Mark. They are based because of what they had to do and some who I think grossly overreached um, in their states in terms of closing down their economies. Um, but it's, it's resulted in those states being beaten down and to think that they could do this on their own uh, without significant private sector help 
and more federal involvement was probably a mistake. Amazon did offer to help President Biden, didn't they? They did, and he should take them up on that help. Um, quite frankly, this should be all hands on deck moment, Mark. We now have the solution to this pandemic, and it is sinful to hear that there are days when people are, are throwing out vaccine um, because they don't have enough arms to put them in. That's obscene in this country, given what everyone has gone through and all the lives we've lost and the lives that have been irretrievably altered. And so this has got to be, you know, I remember when we had Superstorm Sandy um, in New Jersey. I, it was an all-hands-on-deck moment. And I used the authority of the office to get everybody involved in the recovery. And that's why we recovered as quickly as we did and as well as we did. I hope that President Biden's going to do the same thing. Will his first 100 days be judged by how he handles this? Absolutely. Almost exclusively, Mark. Okay, let, let me ask you this. You're a COVID-19 survivor. How did you contract that? And tell us about your experience. Well, for seven months, Mark, I wore a mask whenever I went out. I was practicing social distancing. And then I went down to prepare uh, President Trump for the fall debates. I ran his debate prep in 2016. I ran it again in 2020. And we were getting tested every day when we went in the White House. And I had the wrong impression that when I walked in those gates, I was safe from COVID. So I didn't wear a mask when I was inside the White House for four days. And that's when I contracted the illness. Um, I left the White House on the day of the debate, that Tuesday, and I was sick by Friday and in the hospital by Saturday. You were in the ICU for a while, weren't you? I was for six days. You, you've, you've been a big advocate of masks uh, since. You've done a PSA about that. Tell us about it. Well, the reason I did it, um, Mark, was because of the experience that I had, you know, to let people know there is no safe place from this virus. And that while a mask is not a perfect, uh, you know, solution to the problem, we now know from the statistics we've been able to gather over the last 10 months that you're twice as likely to get COVID if you don't wear a mask than if you do. And so to me, um, I like playing the odds, Mark, and the odds are in your favor if you wear a mask. And so... I felt like, given my public profile and how public my fight with COVID was, that for me to come out with a public service announcement like that hopefully would help uh, change some minds and get people who weren't wearing masks to wear masks until they can get the vaccine. President Biden has a $2 trillion COVID relief package on the deal. You think that's going to go through? Have you looked at that? I have looked at it, Mark, and I'm concerned about a lot of the things that are in there. Because there's a lot of stuff in there that has nothing to do with COVID. You know, tell me what a, what a, what a $15 federal minimum wage has to do with COVID relief. Um, and so I'm concerned that this is going to become uh, a Christmas tree where everybody hangs their particular uh, policy ornament on it um, and get it through. Now, if, if, the, um, if the Democrats use the budget reconciliation uh, mechanism to try to do this, where they would only need their 50 votes plus Vice President Harris... Um, then they will get it through because it certainly will pass the House. Um, but I'm hoping that we can be a little sober about this and say COVID relief, absolutely. Let's let's pinpoint it. Even these additional checks, Mark. I mean, I could tell you I have two young adult children, both who work, um, both who have been able to keep their jobs during COVID. They both got checks from the government. They don't need checks from the government. And so how about we focus this a little bit more and not keep printing money? Because long term... Um, unnecessarily printing that money is going to hurt the American economy. You talked about the $15 minimum wage. What impact would that have on small business, on restaurant owners who are already hurting? Devastating. 
This is just the wrong time to do it. And, you know, I look at how many restaurants in my state and small businesses have closed because I think our governor is one of the governors who drastically overreached um, in terms of not looking for a solution where you could thread the needle, encourage people to be safe and have safe practices, but let people continue to run their businesses. And if we now impose upon them further regulation, which is what this is, it's further federal regulation with a minimum wage at $15 an hour, it is going to further you know, devastate businesses where government already has their boot on their throat. And we don't need to crush their windpipe with a $15 minimum wage. Governor, we're already at $28 trillion in counting. This will add another $2 trillion to be bringing us to 30 in counting. How problematic is the national debt? And when, when do we deal with it? The, the, the problem national debt is problematic. Now, I am not someone who opposes spending smartly in response to a pandemic. This is a once-in-a-hundred-year event. The problem is, during most of the Trump administration, we did nothing about the deficit. In fact, all we did was grow it, Mark. And, and we need, as a Republican Party, to get back to the principle that we will be fiscally responsible. We lost that, unfortunately, during the Trump years because he participated with the Republican Congress and then with the Democratic House in not enforcing fiscal responsibility. And we cannot print money forever. You know, even though we're the strongest economy in the world, we can't do that. You know, I don't think we've even had a, a balanced budget since Newt and Bill Clinton were around. Uh, listen, uh, Biden moved very quickly. President Biden moved very quickly with a series of executive orders. Was once was the uh, one was the uh, climate change order. Is that largely symbolic to rejoin the climate change uh, to re rejoin the uh, climate accord? It is symbolic, but it also could have substantive impact, Mark, because. You know, um, I wouldn't mind us getting into a fair climate change accord around the world. But a climate change accord that treats China as if they're still a developing economy, which is what the Paris Climate Accords do, is ridiculous. They're now the second largest economy in the world. And if we're going to be um, restricted by these rules, they should be too. And I think that the problem for me with the Paris Accords has been the unfairness between the United States and China. China doesn't need any more advantages in the world market. They've got plenty. Um, and I'm happy to have America compete with China and beat China economically, which we will do if the playing field is level. And Paris does not make the playing field level. He also, Biden also revoked the uh, Keystone Pipeline permit. That's going to have a huge impact on jobs right now, isn't it? Huge impact on jobs. All the men and women who are working on that project will now lose their jobs. But more than that, Mark, um, we are finally at a place where America is energy independent. You and I are old enough to remember the gas lines of the 1970s. We remember what it was like to have those countries in the Middle East dominate, dominate our lives. Odd even gas days and all those things that our children and grandchildren don't even know what we're talking about because America is now energy independent. I'm very, very, very upset about the idea that we would give away our energy independence. Um, and getting rid of the Keystone Pipeline is just another indication that energy independence is not a priority of the Biden administration, and that's a, that's not a good thing. Is there any recourse for free market folks, for the people who've been piling in all this money, or, or they just have to live with it? They have to live with it for now, but the recourse is, is you know, elections have consequences. And, um, and so... You know, 2022, we've only got a five-vote deficit in the House of Representatives. We're 50-50 in the Senate. 
we should be focused as Republicans and conservatives going forward to make our case to the American people over the next two years on conservative policies and principles and take back both houses of Congress in 2022. And then we can start to make sure that we right the ship. Where do you see common ground between the Republicans and the administration going forward? You know, I think there could be some common ground on infrastructure. I do think that we need to improve the infrastructure in this country. And I think there can be ways for us to do it and do it the right way. I think there can be certain common ground on foreign policy. I think most Americans are tired of the endless wars that we've been in, and they want to see our troops come home. I think it's one of the good things that President Trump did during his time. One of the many good things that he accomplished was de-emphasizing um, American military involvement in every corner of the world. I think there's ways that we can find common ground on that as well. So I think there are some places where we can find common ground, and we should be exploring other areas as well, because it's pretty clear that the message the American people sent in this election was that they wanted to bring some calm back to the United States and, and wanted us to try to work together. That's a great segue. Why don't we talk about Trump's legacy? Give us your thoughts on that. So I, I said to the president, and, and as you noted up front, I've been friends with the president for 20 years. I know him extraordinarily well. And I was telling him all during his four years that his behavior, if he continued to act that way, was going to obscure and then ultimately diminish his accomplishments in the eyes of the public. And I think that's what happened. That's the only way you can read the, the election results. Because when you look at a guy who had the lowest unemployment among almost every sector of the American population, reduced regulation significantly, brought us the Abraham Accords in the Middle East. Um, brought us energy independence um, to a large extent in this country and made sure that it stayed in place. Stock market um, soared. Right. Stock market soared. Jobs soared. The, the highest number of Americans ever employed in this country. Um, all of those things are great parts of President Trump's legacy that people will not be able to take away. And it's unfortunate that his post-election conduct um, and, and the awful um, riot on Capitol Hill on January 6th now obscures a lot of that record. And, but there were a lot of good things the president did that I agree with over his time um, in office. And, and I think that when history takes a longer look, they'll be able to look at some of those things more objectively. Um, but we as a party now need to recover politically from some of the damage that was done um, so that our ideas don't go away as well. Your thoughts on his immigration policy. He's been right, uh, widely criticized for some of that. Well, listen, Again, I think this is the difference between rhetoric and, and, and what really went on. When you look at, um, for instance, the, the USMCA, uh, his new agreement with Mexico and Canada on trade, that's made our relationship with our two our bordering countries so much better economically and personally for people who are trying to move their way across the border in an orderly and smart fashion. I was never somebody who thought Mexico was ever going to pay for the wall. Um, and so I think in that respect, the president overpromised and underdelivered on that one. Um, and in the end, we've got to figure out a way to make our immigration policy work for our economy and for the American people um, each and every day. We're still going to be an immigrant country. Um, we should be. Um, my parents, uh, my grandparents rather, came here as immigrants um, and made a life that allowed their, their grandson to become the governor of the state of New Jersey. So I want that ethic to continue. Um, but we've got to make sure we protect the American economy and our American workers. Governor, you supported the second impeachment of Donald Trump. Tell us why. Um, what I supported, Mark, was I was asked whether what he did was an impeachable offense. 
And I said, it absolutely is. I also said that I thought with 14 days left in his term, the idea of impeachment and removal seemed to me to be a waste of time. But I do think people need to stand up and say, everything he's done, Mark, it's not just January 6th. He, he lied to angry and desperate people who had voted for him and were disappointed in the results. And he kept promising we were going to see evidence of fraud, and we never did. And to incite people in that way against our democratic process and our free elections is something that I think is an impeachable offense when combined with what happened on January 6th. But do I think we should spend, be spending our time in the midst of the COVID crisis um, worrying about convicting a president who's already been removed? I don't. Well, constitutionally, that's a great question. Can he be uh, tried after he's been removed? A lot of people don't think he can. There's a lot of division on that, Mark. I don't consider myself a constitutional expert, but the Constitution is silent as to it. So, again, everything. But the one thing the framers did make clear was that impeachment is a political process, not a legal one. And so it's going to be up to the Senate to decide. Do they think this is valid or not? I, I would guarantee you this, no matter what happens, if someone tried to take it to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court wouldn't take it. And they'd say that the framers said the political branches are to decide this and the political branches should decide it. So I don't know the answer to that question, but we're about to find out, aren't we? As you look at it, it'd be awful hard bar to get two-thirds of the Senate to convict him, don't you think? I have a hard time believing you're going to find 17 Republicans to vote to convict him. Now, we haven't heard the evidence yet. I'm a, I'm a former prosecutor, former United States attorney, so I'm a slave to the evidence. Um, so I want to hear what they have to say and what they present. But I think as the record stands right now, it's unlikely you'd get 17 Republicans to vote yes. Do you see President Trump as a viable candidate in 2024? Or do you think there's just been so much blowback from a lot of the party that they wouldn't put up with it again? There's two parties, in my view, who will decide that question. The first is President Trump himself, and whether at 78 years old he wants to engage in another campaign. And the second will be the voters, Mark. You know, I, I was one of the candidates who ran against him in 2016, and many of us did not take him seriously when he got into the race. Didn't think he would be considered to be a serious candidate. Um, and guess what? The voters gave us the message of what they thought. So I think when you look at 2024, first, President Trump himself will have to decide is that something he really wants to get involved in again? But in terms of viability, if he were to decide to get in, there's only one group of people who decide that. I learned that in 2016. It's the voters of the Republican Party. They'll decide whether he's viable or not. What do you think about big tech and how they're handling uh, free speech? It's a scandal. It's awful. And no matter whether you agree with what President Trump says on his Twitter page or not, it is, to me, unconscionable that Donald Trump is suspended from Twitter and the Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran has a Twitter page. I'm sorry. He's every day killing his citizens, jailing his citizens, maiming his citizens. And he has a Twitter page, but Donald Trump does not. We should, on both sides of the aisle, Mark, this should be a uniting issue. Because today they're kicking a conservative president off of Twitter. Tomorrow, it could be a liberal one, and everybody should be concerned about that um, and concerned about the restrictions on free speech. And I think it means for sure these companies should get their Section 230 liability shield taken away. If they want to make editorial decisions, 
then they need to be held responsible under our laws in this country. They really were uh, set up as a bulletin board, and more, they're now more like a newspaper, aren't they, or a, a television station? Sure, they're acting much more like that, Mark. I mean, that's what they're doing. And, and to me, uh, if you're going to act that way, that's fine. It's your right to do that in this country with your private business. But you can't then claim to be entitled to a liability shield if you're acting like any other broadcast or print medium. And that's what they're doing now. They're no longer a bulletin board. When you start editing that way, then you have to be responsible for the editing that you do. Governor, put on your consulting hat. What do Republicans need to do, in your view, as a Republican, to retake and, and, and appeal to suburban voters, particularly women? Listen, I think we need to talk about the issues that are central to the Republican Party, about freedom and liberty, economic growth, and opportunity for everyone. Um, good education for everybody, no matter where you live. Strong defense of our country and its borders. All those things are things that are incredibly important. And the evidence as to why they're winning issues, Mark, is we took 14 seats back in the House of Representatives. We flipped two state legislative chambers. And we flipped the only governorship that changed in 2020. All of that happened for the Republican Party beneath the ticket. And quite frankly, if we hadn't had some of the real craziness about election, alleged election fraud, I think we would have kept those two seats in Georgia as well, because when you look at what happened in that runoff election, rural turnout in Georgia was down 15% from the general election, 15%. And it was because they were told that the elections were fixed and their vote didn't matter. So we had some good things going for the Republican Party on Election Day. We need to build on that and talk about it smartly and directly and honestly to the American people. Do you think mail-in ballots, by and large, are secure? Um, it depends on the state, Mark. Um, you know, for instance, in my state of New Jersey, I think it was a travesty because what we did was we sent mail-in ballots to everyone who was registered, regardless of whether you asked for it or not. Um, that's a ridiculous way to do it. And so I do think that mail-in voting can be secure, and I think in some states who have had it for a long time, we've seen it. The biggest problem with this election was we changed the rules in the middle because of COVID. Now, I understand why, you know, many states did that, but a lot of states did it the right way. Um, states like New Jersey did it the wrong way. And so what we need to do is to have a real focus on our electoral system over the next two years, put real reforms in place to make sure that if you're going to do mail-in voting, that's done in a way that is, is secure not in a haphazard way that it was done in a lot of places, not everywhere, but in a lot of places in 2020. Do we need a commission to look into that, into election you know, reform? I don't, I don't know if we need a commission. We do have a Congress. That's what they should be doing, in my view, and the state legislatures. Um, everyone should look at what happened in 2020 and say, we don't want to have to wait a week to find out presidential election results again. We don't want to have to wait weeks and weeks and weeks for congressional results. That's unacceptable. And what it does is it creates an air of illegitimacy. And we don't want that. So state legislatures should be looking at their laws. So should the, the Congress. I don't think we need a special commission. That's usually a dodge by politicians who don't want to make tough calls themselves. You, you know, on the debates, do we just need the campaigns to deal with each other and eliminate the debate commission, you think? Listen, I think the debate commission uh, at one time was a good idea. Um, I don't think it's really necessary anymore. It's usually in the interest of both campaigns to engage in those debates. 
given that we've had them now every four years since 1976, um, you know, I think the American people have come to expect presidential debates and won't put up with a candidate who does not want to do them. And so I think that, you know, getting rid of this commission uh, probably makes some sense and let the campaigns get back to negotiating directly with each other um, and with the networks um, to be able to provide easy access um, to these debates um, for the American people. What metrics will you be looking for as Biden goes forward in his first 100 days? It's all, it's all COVID, Mark, as we talked about before. How efficient is he going to be at getting this vaccine into the arms of the American people? And what will he do to begin to lift the restrictions on our economy? As those vaccinations go up, the regulation of our businesses and restrictions on them should be going down. So that when those two points intersect, that we have an economy that's revving back up again to help support the, uh, the, the needs of the American people and herd immunity, which will help to protect the health of the American people. That's the way he's going to be judged by those two metrics, Mark. And if he doesn't do it well, um, I think the American people will be unsparing in their criticism. Governor, we have about 40 seconds left. Final thoughts, sir? Mark, you know, listen, I think that the light is at the end of the tunnel for our country. And what we need to do is to make sure that we're listening to each other and we're telling the truth to each other. And as a Republican, to be making sure that we're talking about our conservative principles in a smart and honest way. If we do, we're going to get this country recovered from this pandemic and get back to being the leading light of democracy in the world. Governor, thanks for being with us today. We have to roll. That's it for us. Have a great weekend. See you next week on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by... Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman.